Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. You know, we are living in a time when statistics are not really our friends as American Christians. Just about every metric that we can come up with, we are looking at statistics that should give us cause for concern. We can certainly talk about church growth statistics, and the latest numbers suggest that 65% of all churches have either plateaued or in decline. We could talk about the number of pastors who leave the ministry. The internet claims, and of course you can believe everything you read on the internet, that 1,500 pastors leave the ministry every single month. That's an exaggerated claim, but a more accurate number suggests that we lose about 250 pastors every single month. And that's not to death, that's to just, I give up, I'm done, I'm leaving the ministry. And that even still is a, an alarming rate of attrition. We could even talk about what's called the graying of American Christianity. It's no secret evangelical churches are getting older. Listen to this statistic. 62% of white evangelical Protestants are at least 50 years old. 62% of white evangelical Protestants are at least 50 years old. In 1987, fewer than half, 46%, were at least 50 years old. The median age of white evangelical Protestants today is 55. That should concern us. And of course, that leads to what is the most alarming statistic, and that is, of course, the number of young people who leave the church. Depending on who you talk to or which site you're looking at or what research you are looking into, that number goes up or down. But I bet every single one of us in the room this morning know someone or multiple someones who was raised in the church, attended youth group, got baptized, but who currently attend the Church of Lazy Boy on Sunday morning. And that's only anecdotal evidence. It's not quantifiable by any means. But we always find ourselves asking ourselves the question or wondering, what exact, what happened to so-and-so? Why did, they, why did they quit going to church? Why, did they, why do they sit in their recliner on Sunday mornings? Now, regardless of the actual number, we do recognize that there is a generational crisis that exists within our churches. If you're over the age of 60, it might be worthwhile even this morning to take a gander around the room while I speak and make some serious observations even about the demographics gathered here in this assembly. Of course, the most alarming trend, the one that I've cited before in this pulpit, is this. The fastest growing religious affiliation in our nation is known as the nuns. And that's not a Catholic sorority uh, in, in the term nuns. Nuns means those who are unaffiliated, those who have no religious affiliation. When we look at these trends, it's, it's vital that we as the church begin to ask some very hard questions. Now, 
When we open our Bibles, we find that there's always a concerted effort to, to ensure that the subsequent generation follows the faith of their ancestors. There's always a, a concerted effort to ensure that children walk in the faith of the fathers, that grandchildren walk in the faith of the grandfathers. There's always an effort to make sure that parents and grandparents are, are passing along their faith to children and grandchildren, week in, week out, day after day after day. I love the analogy in Psalm 127, verse 4. The psalmist likens this process to the, the, the shooting of an arrow. He says that, that children are like, a, like the, an arrow in the hands of a warrior. And when you think about an arrow in the hands of a warrior, an arrow is designed to be set on the bowstring, pulled back, and at some point in time, a warrior is going to do what to the arrow? Going to release it. In our context, a hunter may be a more uh, understandable concept. But the, the point of that arrow is that one day that arrow is going to be released, and after all of the skill and all of the training and all of the effort that went into shaping and crafting and sharpening that arrow, the intent is that one day the arrow will be released, and that arrow is to do what? Hit its target. Not to go off to the right or off to the left. It's not to fall short. It's not to go over. It's designed to hit its target. And that's how children are likened to by the psalmist here. When we think about an intergenerational transmission of faith, when that process fails, then disaster is not far away. This morning I want us to look at the passing of the torch from one generation to the next in the life of Moses. And hopefully by looking to the example given to us here and in other places in the Scripture, we can find some principles to apply in our own lives. Today we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Drawing near to the conclusion of our series in Moses' life, we want to look at this passing of the torch in Deuteronomy chapter 31. If you've got your place, would you please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's Word. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy those nations before you so that you will dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land, when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you. And you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. May God bless the reading of his word. 
May we apply it correctly to our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. In our passage today, we find that we're getting very close to the end of Moses' life. Deuteronomy, in so many ways, is like a last will and testament of Moses. He's giving this generation of Israelites, raised in the wilderness, all that they needed to know about the Lord, all that they needed to know about His law, all that they needed to know to be prepared for everything that they would face once they crossed the Jordan and they entered into the land of the promise. And part of that preparation is to ensure that there is a plan of succession, to make sure that there was somebody ready to to take the helm, someone ready to, to take charge of the nation. Not that there was any doubt. It was evident throughout the story of Moses' life. But here Moses makes it clear that Joshua would be the next leader of the nation. And and he had a proven track record. There was no doubt here. He proved himself to be a man of great faith. Forty years earlier, when he was the one of two spies who came out ready to enter in and, and take hold of God's promises, proved himself faithful even then. And now he would take the mantle of Moses' leadership. He would lead the nation into a new phase of their existence, a a military phase, a phase that unlike anything they had experienced before, Joshua would become their general. But how did we get to this point, to this this plan of succession here? How did we get here? Well, you know, first we see an intentional investment into the next generation. When you go back and read through the the books that Moses wrote that explained his life, you'll find that Joshua wasn't really a main character, but he always seemed to be on the periphery. He was always just on the cusp. He was always on the edge. Numbers chapter 11 verse 28 says that Joshua was Moses' assistant from his youth. At Mount Sinai, when they spent the year there, it it wasn't unheard of for Joshua to to be there with Moses, right there on the mountain, when, when God was speaking. When Moses would enter the tent of meeting to receive godly counsel, we're told that Joshua was right there. And when Moses would leave, Joshua would sometimes linger behind there in the presence of the Almighty. And though he was always on the periphery, When it came time to lead, Joshua was there and he was ready. He had been well prepared. He'd been well equipped. When you read the book of Joshua, you don't get the picture that that Joshua had a steep learning curve. He was ready. He was eager. He was well equipped and well prepared. And God was with him. But Moses, you know, Moses had invested heavily in him. You know, we need to remember that this investment doesn't come naturally. That's why we use that word intentional. That word is becoming a buzzword, intentionality. We need to be intentional in this. We need to be intentional in that. Because if we're honest and we look at our lives, we recognize that there's a lot of things that we should do that we don't do unless we are intentional in doing them. Many of us probably should be on some sort of a, a diet of some sort that, that would help us to, to, to shave off a few extra pounds. But if you're like me, anytime you've attempted to go onto a diet, 
It just doesn't come naturally. My natural habit would be to finish my dinner and then go to the pantry and find something. You just got to clean your palate, right? And go to that pantry and find something that just has a little bit of sweetness to help cleanse the palate. That's, that's natural. To be intentional is to not go to the pantry. Things that we ought to do, we have to be intentional about doing them. When we think about investing in the next generation, particularly when it comes to matters of faith, we need to understand that intentionality is critical because there's countless distractions that want to interrupt the process. At every single stage of life, there is some level of distraction that seeks to interrupt the process of investing. And it's not getting better if you're parenting children right now, you understand that the distractions are only getting worse, whether it's school. I have come to hate school projects. If you're an educator, I love you. God bless you for what you do. But when you send home school projects, Lord help us. Listen, I've got a master's degree I have done my share of projects in my educational time. I don't need to do fifth grade projects. Uh, school, sports, music, dance classes, karate classes, this lesson, that lesson, this evening, that evening, every single time there's a free moment, it seems that there's something offering a, itself as a distraction to that investment. And then we make it even harder. All that stuff is fine. But then we take it one step further to make it even more difficult, and we take our children and we throw a whole bunch of electronic screens at them. Fatherly.com published an article in May that detailed the dangers of technology addiction with children. They said in this article, if iPads, smartphones, and screens seem like drugs for kids, guess what? It's because when it comes to a child's developing brain, digital screens have a lot in common with drug addiction. Screen time, sugary sweets, rewards, they all flood the kids' brains with dopamine. And dopamine is the same feel-good chemical released when people do cocaine. Consider that. Now, you would never in a million years take... Uh, cocaine and set in front of your child, yet when we put screens in front of them, we are creating the same chemical reaction in the brain as giving them a hit of cocaine. So let's be honest. We have our work cut out for us, and unless we are intentional, we might find that the next generation, from a faith standpoint, has slipped right through our fingers. Fuller Seminary has identified several markers of what they call a sticky faith. I love that term, a sticky faith. The, the larger community of faith, what they say, is needed to help ensure that the passing of the faith sticks. That when a child grows, that the faith of the parents sticks. Recent studies show that a, a teenager's faith, in order for it to become sticky and continue on into adulthood, a student needs five significant relationships. 
One is, of course, the parents. Two is a student pastor or leader who knows them very well. But they say that they need an additional three adults who know their name, who will approach them, and when they are in church, ask them about life and school, who will speak blessings and encouragement over them as they grow and pursue a vocation and a family. We have the Pray For Me campaign here, which is designed to help ensure that every one of our students has that, that, that community around them. But we need to recognize that it is far more than just a prayer relationship, that when we when we invest in this way, we need to make sure that we are investing in our students beyond just, I'm praying for you. We need to be able to ask them, how's school going? How's that, how are you doing in, on this team or that team? How are you doing in your, in your daily quiet times and daily devotions? We need to have the level of relationship where we can ask those kinds of questions with one another. Fuller says a youth group is not enough. At best, a youth group can provide significant relationships with good peers and good youth leaders, but it's not the larger community of faith. At its worst, a youth group can be an island for students, isolating the youth from the larger community of faith. Sadly, our practice for many years has been to do this with our children and teens. We stick them in the youth group area. We put them back there. We let them mix and mingle for some time. And then when they graduate high school and they've completed their most formative years, we unlock the doors, we give them a Bible on graduation Sunday, and we hope for the best. Are we really satisfied that that's the very best way we can do that as the people of God? We have to do better. We have to be intentional. Secondly, we need to make sure that we value subsequent generations. Notice when Moses summoned Joshua to the front, he didn't undercut him or short sell his abilities. You guys bring Joshua up here. You know, he, he's one of those younger generations, so let's hope he can pull it off. It's not what Moses did. Moses is 120 years old. He's about as old as you're going to get in this day and time. But he brings Joshua up, and he doesn't undercut his leadership. He doesn't say he, he may or may not be able to pull this together. He doesn't say, y'all remember what happened to all his buddies, right? You remember what happened to all his buddies, right? They died. Joshua and Caleb were the only two. He doesn't do that. In, in fact, when, when Moses brings Joshua up, the words of blessing that Moses speaks over Joshua are the same words that God spoke over Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus 3 from the burning bush, God promised Moses that his abiding presence would accompany him. And that's exactly what he promises here to Joshua. Whether we like to admit it or not, we need subsequent generations. I, I enjoy reading the, uh, the Babylon Bee. The Babylon Bee is a satire Christian website, and they make fun of a lot of different things. Uh, they make fun of us a lot, because I think it's important that we be able to make fun of ourselves. And they recently posted an article, and the headline was this, Nation's Gen Xers announced plan to just sit back and enjoy watching boomers and millennials tear each other to shreds. 
I'm a Gen Xer, so I connected with this one pretty well. Uh, if you're 50s and older, you're a, you're, a, uh, you're a boomer. If you're under 40 in your 30s and 20s, you're a millennial. And, and hey, let's face it, in the culture wars, there's a lot of strife between those generations. Uh, I hear boomers say that millennials are the cause of all the problems. I hear millennials say that those old boomers are the cause of all the problems. And guess what? If that's the case, then everybody's responsible for all the problems. But we need to, in the church, learn to value subsequent generations. What makes this satire so biting is satire gets really, really close to the truth, but just misses it, and that's what makes it sting. The truth is we need all generations in the church. All generations have value. And we would do very well to learn from one another. Spencer and I have had this conversation a lot, and one of the wisest things that I've heard him say is this. The older generation doesn't want to change anything, and the younger generation wants to change everything. You think about that. Older generation doesn't want to change anything, but the younger generation wants to change everything. But if we could learn from one another learn to value one another, then we might learn that there are some things that really do need to change, and there are some things that are better served in terms of historical traditions and practices. I'm not going to lie. When that church organ fired up at the beginning of the service, I got, I got tingling just a little bit. I said, I want to hear it so loud that the pew vibrates. Because, you know, you've been in those churches with the big pipe organs, and the organist hits that, hits that low note, and, uh, and the floor shakes. I wanted that experience, because uh, that's good. That's good. There's nothing wrong with that. It's okay to, to appreciate and learn from, from those valuable experiences, but at the same time, there's just as much value in the new hymns of faith that are being written as well. If we would learn to value one another and listen to one another, then we might just learn better from one another. And you see Moses elevating Joshua without undercutting his youth, without undercutting his age, but speaking God's blessings over him as he passes the torch from one generation to the next. Thirdly, we need to be wise to recognize the simple fact that we are always one generation away from complete failure. We are one generation away from complete and total failure. Joshua led his generation well. The, the, the generation that Joshua brought across the Jordan River into the promised land, they took out Jericho, they learned at Ai, they conquered, they did great. And we're told over in Joshua at the end of the book, chapter 24, we're told this, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him, who had experienced everything that the Lord had done to Israel. And so we're told that Joshua and the next generation, they did well. They led well, they served well, they were faithful, that God did awesome things in those generations. However, we're also told that the passing on of faith broke down after that generation died. Somewhere along the line, parents failed to instruct their children and the larger faith community of Israel failed to honor God. And in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, we find these words. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord 
nor what he had done for Israel. One generation. One generation. And everything came undone. Listen, if we don't start to get a handle on things, then your grandchildren's church is going to look a lot different than your church. And I don't mean in a good way. If we don't start to get a grasp of this, not Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church, but us in the greater context of all churches, our grandchildren's church is going to be a lot different. And this has already started to happen over in Europe. If you've ever been to Europe, then you, you'll testify to the fact that there are empty churches everywhere. Because Europe used to look like Georgia, where there was a church on every corner. And over the course of time, that has changed because one generation is not communicated to the next. Churches all across the continent are being emptied and converted. For example, this church in Spain, the Church of Santa Barbara in Llanera, Spain, has been turned into an indoor skateboard park. <laughs> Some of y'all are like, that's pretty cool, right? We turn that gym back there into a skate park, right? No, think sanctuary. Think, think somebody, you know, skating down a, a half pipe next to the stained glass windows. This church in Scotland, <laughs> this looks like a Baptist church. It's got a boxing ring in the front. <laughs> Preacher, we don't do church conferences anymore. We just settle them from the ropes. It's an event center, a bar, a nightclub. <laughs> Some of y'all are like, that's not a bad idea. Isn't that something? Look, I mean, good gracious. This church in England has turned into a very beautiful private home. Looks like Chip and Joe got a hold of that one. I'm a little nervous about what they did with the catacombs underneath. This church was turned into a microbrewery, St. John the Baptist. That's in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh. And they're not brewing their communion wine there, I'll just say that. I'm not sure what we have to do to heed the warning but we'd better take it very seriously. Or we may find that empty church buildings are more than just pictures on the internet, but may actually just be right down the street from where we live. You know, the psalmist recognized the importance of this concept over in Psalm 145. He says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. And then he says in verse 4, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Church, it is our job, it is our responsibility, it is our high calling from God to make sure that we are communicating the faith that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ to the next generation. And we can't be completely sold out on subcontracting out that responsibility to paid clergy and church work because that work has to happen in the homes. 
It has to happen when mom and dad take seriously this call upon their lives to make sure that children embrace and understand their faith. And I hear parents sometimes say that I want, I want my child to, to figure this out. You know, I want, him to, I want his faith to be his own. I understand what you're saying there, but can I just share this daddy's heart for a moment? I've given my life to the Lord Jesus Christ in a particular expression of the Christian faith that's, that we call ourselves Southern Baptists. That's fine. But I've given my life to it. If I've given my life to it, do you not think I believe it's important enough that I want my children to embrace it as well? I want my children to embrace it because I think it's just right. If it wasn't right, why would I give my life to it? If it wasn't accurate, why wouldn't I leave it and go find that which I believe to be accurate? And so I'll challenge you moms and dads to make sure that if you've given your life to something, better make sure your kids embrace it too. Because if it's not important enough for you to pass it on to your kids, then why is it so important that you follow it? I want to make sure that my kids embrace the faith that I've given my life to. I want to make sure that the next generation understands why. I want to make sure that the next generation gets it. And it's my job. The church can come alongside of that. Youth groups and kids' ministries and all those things are great and wonderful and necessary because the fact is there's a lot of kids who come to church whose parents aren't doing it. And the couple of hours that we've got them during the week is the only opportunity they've got. But I want to make sure I'm doing it at home, that I'm the primary disciple maker of my kids. And one day, the Lord may give me grandchildren, and when that day comes, I want to make sure that I'm investing in both those generations as well. And that's all of our calling. If you say Jesus is Lord, that's a calling you've signed up for. Let's make sure we pass the faith on to the next generation. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.